This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I want to welcome today a very special guest, Alan Dershowitz. Alan has had perhaps the most storied, consequential, and important career in American legal history. He has taught at Harvard Law School for 50 years, educating two generations of American business, political, intellectual, and judicial leaders. He's the author of dozens of important and popular books on subjects including defense law, criminal defense law, the criminal justice system, Jewish identity, Israel, and my favorite of his books, The Genesis of Justice, 10 Stories of Biblical Injustice that Led to the Ten Commandments and Modern Law. As a practicing defense attorney, his clients have included Patty Hearst, Harry Reams, Leona Helmsley, Jim Baker, Mike Tyson, Michael Milken, O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Epstein, and Donald Trump. Half of his practice is devoted to pro bono work, especially in defense of women who have defended themselves against abusive husbands. I have been honored to get to know Alan in his capacity as a board member of United Hatzalah, where Alan is a generous contributor and is always willing to do anything to help United Hatzalah save Jewish, Muslim, and Christian lives in Israel. But there's one aspect of Alan's remarkable career that is often overlooked and sometimes not discussed at all. And this is, in retrospect, perhaps its most impactful. Now, one of the most important Jewish ideas concerns the importance of words. The fact that God created the world with nine and God says, rather than a proverbial snap of the fingers, and we too create worlds with words is emphasized throughout the Torah and in all Jewish teaching. We often focus on Lashon Hara, which is the prohibition against gossip that is equated to murder, idolatry, and sexual immorality. But just as words can destroy, they can also create. So Alan, perhaps we can begin by your telling us what was presumably one of your first jobs as a camp counselor and how just a few words from another very young man changed your life and consequently all of ours. Well, thank you so much for doing this wonderful, wonderful program uh, and for being the rabbi's husband. That's a terrific concept. Before I went to camp, I was a terrible student in yeshiva. And my rabbis and my teachers told me I just wasn't particularly bright. I should think of uh, a career, maybe selling insurance. I was verbal. One of them said I could be a funeral director, but I was not college material. And I went to camp and a young counselor, a few years older than me, said to me, you know, Alan, you're really very smart. People don't realize that, but you're really very smart. And the man who told me that was Rabbi Yitz Greenberg who's now become one of the most eminent rabbis in, in modern Jewish history and had a major impact on my life and self-worth and uh, led me to go on to be you know, a top law student and then uh, a pretty good lawyer. So words do matter. So those words from uh, another very young man, Yitz Greenberg, who's now a legendary rabbi himself, if he hadn't told you you were very smart, you would not have known you were very smart and would not have even started upon the path that has led you to where you are today. It's possible I could be selling shoes today in Brownsville, Brooklyn, but I'd probably be a very good shoe salesman. But he <laughs> told me I was smart. Look, my teachers used the word wise, but the word was I was a wise guy. And, you know, I had a good sense of humor. I always had wise cracks. 
My mother told me I was smart, but, you know, of course, every mother tells her son or daughter that he or she is smart. But what Rabbi Greenberg told me really had a profound influence on my life. Wow. Well, what a story about how words can create worlds and change lives. Just one sentence made Alan Dershowitz who he is today. One sentence that certainly the young Yitz Greenberg had no idea would have had any impact at all, let alone the impact that it's had today. So one sentence recently from a woman I never met has changed my life and threatened to destroy my whole legacy. A woman I never met, never heard of, accused me of having sex with her. I found emails from her to her friends and book manuscripts proving she never met me. But just uttering those words has created a cancel culture on me. The 92nd Street Y won't allow me to speak. Um, Many college campuses won't allow me to speak. So words can create a career and words can try to destroy a career. Uh, That's why Lashon Hara is so much an important part of the Jewish prohibition and why in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness, is up there with murder and, and robbery. And I wish people would take bearing false witness more seriously. I'm fighting for my reputation. I will ultimately win, but at great cost, emotional, physical, and other ways. So, you know, I think of myself in the Bible as as, uh, Yosef, Joseph, who was falsely accused by Potiphar. And I'm not comparing myself to Joseph, but, you know, the book of Bereshit has so many stories that are so relevant to today and to our legal system, which is why I love the Torah, and why I wrote my two books on the Torah, one, the one you mentioned, The Genesis of Justice, and the other one called Abraham, the world's first, but certainly not last Jewish lawyer. Alan, nobody can destroy what you've built, and you have done so much for so many people, all the people that you've trained, all the people that you've inspired, all the people whose lives you've impacted in so many ways, nobody can destroy it, but thank God you're fighting it. Now, Alan, we're here today to discuss, when I asked you about what Parsha you wanted to discuss, uh, I was so delighted with both of the choices that you proposed. But uh, today we're here to discuss perhaps the seminal text in Western thought, which is the Akedah. I mean, I, there could be a lot of contenders for that from the Bible, but the Akedah is as canonical a biblical story as there is. This is the binding of Isaac. So, Alan, what happened at and around the Akedah? Well, first of all, before you get to the Akedah, I don't think you can fully understand the Akedah until you look at a couple of sentences before that in, in Vayera. And if I could just read the sentence that I think, along with the Akeda, are the most profound words uh, in, the, in the history of not only Judaism, but in the history of law. Let me just read you the words. This is Abraham, who just meets God, and speaking to God in, in the roughest of terms. He says to God, Chalila lacha, Chalila lacha, cursed are you. Uh, what Abraham is saying to God is, for, for be it from thee, how dare you? How are you doing something like this to sweep away the righteous along with the, with the evil? Uh, how dare you? At Sodom, at Sodom. And, and, and this is when God wanted to destroy Sodom. How dare you, the judge of all the world, has shofet kolaris lo yasemish put. So what this says is it, it's so profound in what it lays out. First of all, it says no one's above the law. We hear that as a cliche all the time. We think about presidents and kings, but here Abraham is saying, God, you're not above the law. You're the judge of all the law. How dare you do injustice? It also shows that humans can argue. They don't have to accept injustice, even when it comes from God. 
You can challenge authority. It talks about the presumption of innocence. How about the innocent? How can you sweep them away? In the end, it's better 10 guilty go free than one innocent be wrongly confined. That the law is matters of degree. So it establishes the whole concept of the adversary system of law in one sentence. Then you skip to the Akedah, and God says to Avraham, bring me your son, uh, your only son, the one you love. And what does Abraham say? He named me, here I am, yeah, I'll do it. So the question arises, why is Abraham willing to argue with God about strangers, mostly strangers? Yeah, his, his relative lo- lives there, but he's going to be saved anyway. The question is, why is Abraham willing to argue on behalf of guilty people in Saddam and not make the same argument on behalf of his own son? Why doesn't Abraham say to God when God asks him to bring his son up to Mount Moriah, why doesn't he say, the judge of the whole world will not do justice? You're asking me to sacrifice my innocent son, Isaac? So it's a profound question that every philosopher, every theologian has had to confront, and we're still confronting it. Well, absolutely. And and it's, it's even more than that, because when God tells Abraham to sacrifice your son, then Abraham gets up early. And getting up early is a biblical motif for being enthusiastic and excited to do something. Abraham does it, Jacob does it, Moses does it, Joshua does it, Elkanah Hannah do it, David does it, King Hezekiah and Ezra do it. When people in the Bible get up early, that signifies, just like in our lives, that we're excited for the day. So Abraham is excited for the day when he's gonna go up to the mountain to sacrifice his son. So Alan, why doesn't he argue with God? Well, there are many interpretations. I think one interpretation is that when he does argue with God over Saddam, he's been invited to argue with God. In the previous sentences, God says, shall I withhold from my servant Abraham what I'm about to do? And he goes down and he tells him what he's going to do, inviting argument, inviting discussion, seeking advice, perhaps. Maybe he was hoping Abraham would talk him out of it. After all, he had done it once before. He had swept away the innocent along with the guilty in the flood. And so maybe he wanted somebody to persuade him that it was the wrong thing to do. God doesn't like to destroy innocent life. Sometimes he feels maybe it's it's necessary. But when it comes to the Akedah, there's no argument. God commands him. He commands him. I'll never forget, this is a name-dropping story. I put this question to President Bill Clinton on Martha's Vineyard, must be 25 years ago, when uh, he used to come to the vineyard every summer, and I was writing my book, The Genesis of Justice. And he said, there's a very simple answer. He said, when I have a cabinet meeting, sometimes I invite discussion, and I want to hear people criticize me. And that's the Saddam story. But when I make up my mind, and I say to my cabinet, do it, I don't want to hear any backtalk. I don't want to hear any criticism. There's the difference between inviting argument when you're the president and certainly when you're God and not inviting argument. And with the Akedah, there was no invitation to argument. This was a test. This was Abraham saying, this is God saying to Abraham, I'm testing you now. I don't know whether you pass the test by refusing to obey me or you pass the test by obeying me, or maybe you pass the test by obeying me, knowing that in the end, a good God will not allow Abraham to kill his own son, that something will come down, the angel will come down and stop me. It's a fascinating interpretation by President Clinton, but I would point to 22-2, where God says, please take your son, your only one. Now, 
when you want to give a directive to somebody, you wouldn't normally start it with please. It seems to me like God might be inviting or at least allowing an argument that he never gets. He doesn't get the argument. And, uh, you know, it, it could be that, as Kierkegaard said, Abraham was a man of faith and he put his faith in God, but he didn't have faith in God when God was about to kill the sinners of Saddam. Here you have a man arguing with God. By the way, it's the only religion I know of in the world in where a person is praised, praised for arguing with God. In most religions, if you argue with God or the Pope or the uh, Imam, uh, there's swift punishment. But in Judaism, like with the Talmud, dissenting views are preserved. We're an argumentative people. We're a stiff-necked people, Sheoref. We are people who don't get pushed around easily. We had experiences where we were pushed around, obviously, the Inquisition, the Crusades, the Shoah. But the biblical Abraham doesn't get pushed around in the Saddam story, but then he does in the Akedah story. And there's a fascinating disconnect. And of course, we learn from the sages that God doesn't put anything in the Torah, which is an extra word or an extra concept. Everything has to have meaning. So that during my bar mitzvah, Sedra, which was Shoftim, when God says, Sedek, Sedek, Tirdof, and the right. commentators ask, why does God have to repeat the word Sedek? And there are so many interpretations. There are different forms of justice. We're talking about procedural justice versus substantive justice, justice for the innocent, justice even for the guilty. There are so many interpretations. And the great thing about the Bible, the Jewish Bible, is that because its characters are not flawless, unlike Jesus of the New Testament, Muhammad of the Quran, who are deemed to be flawless, the Jewish patriarchs are not flawless. Avraham had faults. Uh, Yitzchak had faults. Yaakov had faults. Moshe had faults. Amalek David, King David, certainly had enormous faults. And we have to learn from their faults because God is telling us, you're all imperfect. You all have faults. Now learn lessons about how people dealt with their faults. And Abraham deals with, he believes, God's fault in the story of Saddam. It's an intriguing, intriguing story. It tells you so much about Jewish history and the history of the law just in those few verses, and the the paradox of arguing about strangers. And that happens now in modern life. We see Jews spend more time defending the rights of others than they do defending the rights of Israel, defending their own rights. And that often raises questions. Are Jews obeying Hillel's second commandment more than the first? If I am not for myself, what am I? But if I myself for alone, alone uh, who am I? What am I? And if not now, when? So we have to strike a balance between defending the rights of others and defending our own rights. I've devoted my legal career to defending the rights of others, but I always have devoted a substantial part of it to defending Israel and Jewish values. And so the Bible sets out all these questions. Uh, you know, the Bible is the best book of questions ever written. The answers, we're still struggling with them. And, and that's 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 the beauty of the, one of the beauties of the Bible. Now, getting back to this passage, really, let's just focus on 22, two, where he says, please. Again, I think I read that as an invitation to argue, which he never gets. And then this is the first time in the Torah when the word love is used. And it's not used in a romantic context. It's used between a father and a son because he said, please take your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac. 
And it's God telling Abraham that he loves Isaac. It's not Abraham telling Isaac that he loves him. So God is here defining the relationship between a father and a son, not of one of responsibility or certainly one of authority, but one of love. And so that to me can be read as an invitation. Here is the son that you love. Love is now introduced. Here's the son that you love. So act like a father. What would you do out of love? You would defend that which you love with every fiber of your being. And that's why love is so tied in in this story and in other stories and in our lives with sacrifice. Because defend it, sacrifice yourself, argue with God. And so interesting because after Abraham takes him up, there's then another description, but it doesn't say the son that you love. It just says the son. So oh, very interesting, maybe, right? Maybe, maybe their relationship was tested. Who was the the philosopher who who said he'd love to have been a fly on the wall, listening to the conversation between Abraham and and Isaac on the way back, on the way down? And re- remember too that after this episode, Abraham never speaks to Sarah again. She dies. Um, she, the next thing we see about her is Haye Sarah, I believe, where she right. is, she's and, dead. And, and she was probably not too happy. But remember, too, this was not the first time that Abraham was willing to kill one of his sons. Remember, Sarah told Abraham earlier on, take your other son, Ishmael, bring him out into the wilderness. What does that mean? It means right. let him die. And Abraham doesn't argue with Sarah. Look, that I understand. Not arguing with your wife, I understand. That's been the basis for success of my marriage for 36 years. Whatever my wife says, yes, 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 I love you. I, I believe that's what God instructs Abraham. He says, whatever Sarah says, you should do. Right, right, yeah. But again, here you have Abraham twice being tested, and twice, at least according to some, failing the test, and according to others, passing the test, because both times, he listens to God's commandment. Well, also when, when um, so Abraham, God tells Abraham what Abraham knew, that he loved Isaac, and then they walked, and as you pointed out, it doesn't come in in the end, and in the beginning of the uh, Parsha, they walk up the mountain together, but they don't walk down together. Yeah, 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 yeah. And their, this. their relationship is never the same, and how could it be? Yeah, and even, you know, that uh, Abraham said Shiva, over, over Sarah, it says mm-hmm. after a few days by Yakam, he, he stood up, he arose, suggesting that he was sitting for the days prior there too, but uh, Isaac is nowhere to be seen. So it's Abraham sitting Shiva over his wife without Isaac, who may have been a little upset that his mother didn't protect him well enough, remembering right. also that what his mother did in relation to his half-brother. So these are such complex stories, you know, as you know from my book, The Genesis of Justice, my theory is that the book of Genesis is the world without law, striving for justice without a legal code. And then Shemot is the creation of law. The Aseret had to broke the 10 statements, which include statements of law, but also statements of faith. And if you look at the Aseret had to all of them reflect failings of what happened in the book of Bereshit. That is, the book of Bereshit is the common law, struggling, trial and error, trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And then by the time we get to Shemot, God says, let me tell you what's right. And he sets out not only the Aseret Debrot, the Ten Statements, but he also sets out rules of law after that, and prohibitions and permissions. We move from common law to statutory law when we move from Bereshit to Shemot, because you can't have statutory law until you've lived through the experiences of searching for justice and trying to find justice 
in the activities of imperfect human beings. And a society that's all love and no law is not going to work. That's the problem that Jacob had with Joseph. He loved him, but didn't apply any standards to how he would express his love, and thus created a familial catastrophe. Which many of us have experienced. We love our children uh, uncritically, and sometimes children are spoiled as the result of that. The Bible is all about balance. The Bible is all Mm. about the lack of absolutes. For every rule, there's an exception. Even getting back to Saddam, Abraham doesn't go beyond 10. What if there are 10 righteous people? And God says, I'll spare the city if there are 10 righteous people. And then Abraham returns to his place, which is, again, a biblical metaphor for he stops arguing with God because he knows that our legal system can never be perfect. There are always going to be some innocent people caught up in any human legal system. And remember, too, the story of Saddam is God setting out to explain to Abraham, because he's going to be the leader of a great people, how to administer justice. And he says you have to have a balanced system, maybe convicting one innocent person or two innocent people. Maybe that's not too much if you have thousands of guilty people. But if you have as many as 10 or 20, that's too much. And I've used that argument in court. I've used that argument against the death penalty. And I would say that that verse from Bereshit, from Vayera, has probably been as influential in my life, in my career, as my bar mitzvah sedra, tzedek, 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 Both of them are verses I go back to from time to time whenever I need inspiration for representing, and sometimes I represent some of the most horrible people in the world, people who have done horrible, horrible things, and yet I'm obliged to defend them by the Constitution. And I look to the people of Saddam who did terrible, terrible things, and yet they had a, a champion. They had somebody defending them, namely uh, Avraham. So you need a system in which the guilty and the innocent are defended so that innocent people are not caught up and swept away. Along and Isaac was certainly an innocent person here. And one of the very interesting things about Isaac is that when we imagine the story, we might imi- imagine Isaac as a kid, but he was probably either 37 or 39 years old. And biblical ages are very, very difficult to fathom because we know that, according to the Bible, at least, Methuselah lived 900 years, and the patriarchs lived 100 100 years, you know, three-figure lives, not two-figure lives. And so maybe they counted a little bit differently. We're not sure exactly how age works in the Bible compared to how ages work today, but um, certainly, certainly Isaac was a sentient person. He understood what was happening to him. And, you know, some of the world's great paintings right. uh, have pictured the Akedah, you know, from Rembrandt to Chagall. Uh, the Akedah has been a very familiar. I remember once buying uh, an Armenian painting, a small Armenian painting of the Akedah, in which the knife that's supposed to kill uh, Isaac hangs in the air, hangs in the air, with Abraham looking at it, Isaac looking at it, the angel looking at it, and God looking at it all wondering what's going to happen. It was a great drama, and it's been portrayed so dramatically over the years in art and fiction and in literature, and of course... So, Alan, why do you think Abraham doesn't argue with God? I mean, putting aside millennia of rabbinic commentaries, why do you... I mean, Abraham argues with God, Moses argues with God, God changes the whole Torah when the daughters of Zelopakad make a very good argument that women should be able to inherit. God changes the whole Torah when five ordinary men say that that they want to celebrate Pesach with Pesach Shani. 
God loves a good argument and God changes when he receives a better argument, which he often does. Why doesn't Abraham give him one? Because Abraham thinks he persuaded God in the Sodom story. Huh. He won that argument. He persuaded God not to sweep away the innocent along with the guilty. And therefore, I think he had faith that God would listen to his argument. You know, they say to lawyers, when you've won your argument, sit down. Don't argue more. You might give the other side ammunition to defeat your argument. I think Abraham did not believe in the end that God would allow him to kill his completely innocent child. So he had, he had complete faith. If so, it was more a test of his faith than it was in his willingness to do God's will. Because the question then arises, what if he was wrong? What if God really wanted him to kill his child? Would he have been able to plunge that knife into his child's heart? According to the biblical account, you know, an angel essentially has to stop him, but it doesn't tell us what would have happened if the angel, you know, I had a case a few years ago. This is fascinating. I had a case a few years ago, which I won based on the Akeda story. So my case was in Tennessee. And it involved a couple that was living together, a Jewish couple that was living together. He, the man, got into a fight with the woman and burned her. And eventually, after suffering a lot, she died. And the brother of the victim came to the man who had killed his sister and took a knife and held it above his head and was about to plunge it down when the police came in and stopped him. And he was charged with attempted murder. And I argued to the Tennessee Supreme Court that we couldn't know for sure that this was attempted murder. We don't know what would have happened if the police hadn't come. Would he have actually stabbed him or did he merely want to frighten him? Did he want to say, look, I'm not letting you get away with this. I'm going to make sure you're convicted and and, and imprisoned. Or was he actually going to plunge the knife? And I said, in the light of uncertainty and the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it's like the Akeda, I said to the court. For thousands of years, people have been arguing, would Abraham have actually done it? And here we have a case where we don't know whether my uh, client would have done it. And we won the case. Wow. And citing the Akeda in, in a court. Wow. Yeah. So this is such an interesting argument, which I've never heard before. So your argument is that Abraham had convinced God at Sodom that it was immoral, according to God's morality and God's logic, to kill the innocent. Isaac is innocent in the Akeda. Therefore, God, who's already convinced, is not going to do it. And this must be some kind of test. I might not understand everything about it, but he's not going to, at the end of the day, really want me to kill Isaac. Look, it's one interpretation of many. You know, Rambam was a great, great Jewish scholar, but he didn't understand, at least he didn't understand Ashkenazi Jews. Maybe he understood Spartan Hmm. Jews. Maybe he understood only his own community. But he didn't understand the Ashkenazi tradition of arguing because he didn't believe in... Talmudic discourse and arguing back and forth in his Mishnah Torah, basically he says there's one authoritative interpretation. He was trying to impose on Judaism the papacy, um, you know, the rule of the Pope or the rule of the Imam. He didn't like rabbis arguing with each other. So Maimonides didn't quite understand or capture or believe in the spirit of Jewish argumentation. If we had listened to the Rambam on Imam Inba Amuna Shlema, he has 13 principles he sets out. These are immutable principles. In Judaism, there aren't 13 principles. There are 613 mitzvot, and we argue about them all day. For every rule is an exception. That's why we're such good tax lawyers. 
It's like the IRS. The IRS sets out a rule, then there are 15 exceptions, then there are 10 exceptions to the exceptions. That's Judaism. Judaism is all about arguing, debating, not resolving the issues. And so we will continue to argue and debate the Akedah, the Saddam story, so many other stories. Uh, yesterday, I was discussing with a very eminent rabbi. He said he was the defense attorney basically for uh, David, King David, David Amela. He was trying to justify how David could have sent Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, out to the battlefield in order to get him killed so he could marry his widow. Uh, and he came up with a million wonderful justifications for which I would have given my students A pluses, even if I disagreed with them. But that's the nature of Judaism. Uh, we are all defense attorneys. We try to understand, explain, and defend the patriarch's actions, even when we can't. And ultimately, we try to understand and explain God's actions. Who can understand God's inaction during the Shoah, during the Holocaust? Who can understand that? You know, we have so many stories in the Bible where God saves people, but he also endangers them. And so these are paradoxes, and Jews look for better questions. I think it was Feynman, the great physicist who won the Nobel Prize, whose mother at the end of day would always ask him, did you ask a good question? That's the right. Jewish way. Did you ask a good question? Not did you come up with an answer? Answers will vary over time. Questions are eternal. And I think one of the great gifts of this story, the Akedo, which is such a horrifying story on, on, on one level, but so endlessly fascinating and open to so many interpretations, which have been going on forever and never stop, is that it teaches us how to argue and how to think, and that it's okay to criticize Abraham, it's okay to criticize God, and it's always great to just think more deeply and to ask more questions. And that's one of the great gifts of this story is that because there are no answers, not even close, every time you think you have one, just 10 more questions come up. That's a great education in and of itself. Well, the other education is to teach you how to argue with dignity and decently and not the way we argue today. Today, right. we don't argue with each other. We shout at each other. We have bumper stickers. We cancel each other. There's no opportunity to debate. It's canceled culture. It's uh, shutting people down. It's shouting at them. It's cursing them. We have to learn how to argue the way God argued with Abraham and Abraham argued with God. And uh, dialogue is so incredibly important at a divisive time, such as the one we're now living through. Right. That's right. So, Alan, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. And before we go, just one one final question, which is actually not on the Torah portion, but it derives from um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir, where he said that he, uh, he had just run into a man with whom he had served in the war. And he said this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So he asked the man, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And so the priest said, I've learned two things. One, people are much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Alan, in your more than 50 years of educating so many of the leaders of not just American law, but um, American business policy, basically every sector of American law, in your 50 years of being an educator, a practicing attorney, an author, a great public intellectual, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? First, that no one's perfect, that it's always going to be a matter of degree. Yes, there's good and yes, there's evil, but there's no perfect good. There may be perfect evil, but there's no mm. there's no uh, perfect good. And related to that, there are almost no perfect answers to difficult problems that uh, 
the process of, of arriving at truth is a never-ending process. Uh, every time we learn a new truth, that truth raises more questions. And we keep having to ask questions and we keep having to struggle with imperfect answers. We are imperfect human beings. Newton's dog uh, couldn't understand uh, Newton's laws of gravity. And remember that we're only a matter of degree different from Newton's dog. We are imperfect creatures. We don't know the answers. None of us will ever figure out how the world began. You know, it's interesting. The scholars of the Talmud ask why the first word in the Bible, the first letter in the Bible is a bet. And, and one of the answers is that a bet is surrounded on three sides. It only has one opening. And the opening is that knowledge must go forward, that we'll never know how we got here. We'll never know what the origins of the universe are. There are questions beyond the comprehension of human beings. We'll never know what the perfect society, the utopia would ever look like. We know what the dystopia looks like because we've lived through it, Nazi right. Germany, other forms of, 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 of hatefulness. So the perfect is the enemy of the good. Let's strive to be better, but let's not fool ourselves into thinking they're either perfect human beings or perfect answers to complex and difficult problems. Well, I think that everyone who participates in public discussion should think deeply upon what, what you just said, which is such a magnificent expression of humility, where you said, quote, There's, there are no perfect answers to difficult questions. Mm -hmm. And if we all yeah. just internalize that and discussed accordingly, um, we could all move forward together um, in a spirit of comedy rather than divisiveness. Yeah, no. And as you say, comet T, let's also do it in the spirit of comedy, because Absolutely. I think a sense of humor, a sense of humor, which is part of Jewish heritage and part of Jewish life. We laugh at ourselves. We laugh at everything. Well, um, and Isaac's name, Isaac's name means and he yeah, will laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that she's going to have a baby at this age. Come on. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, we're people with a sense of humor, with a sense of questioning. And, you know, but we have to put our survival first. Remember, too, that the Psalms have this wonderful phrase, Hashem owes the Amoyutain. God will give the Jewish people peace. Hashem shalom. The Jews will get peace only when we get strength. Hashem owes. God will give us strength. We need strength. We need to fight for our rights. We need to make sure that the nation state of the Jewish people thrives and survives. One of the great thrills I have in my life is to work closely with you, Mark, and with Ellie and all the others on United Hatzalah. We just dedicated two um, uh, ambicycles to my wife and me and two bikes to my daughter and her fiance. Every time I think that those bikes and ambucycles are out there 24-7, you know, the Jews always say 24-6, right. but not United Hatzalah. That's 24-7. Yom Kippur, you name it. It doesn't matter. A Hasidic Jew will get on an ambucycle to save a Muslim on Yom Kippur. It's so important that we continue to support organizations like that, which reflect the best of Jewish values. So it's my thrill to work with you on that great organization. Well, Alan, thank you for such a wonderful participation today and for your life of service to the Jewish people, the state of Israel, civil liberties in the United States, the cause of justice for so many, and of course, for United Hatzalah, which um, anyone can learn about um, at IsraelRescue.org. Alan, thank you for such a wonderful conversation today. Thank you. Thank you for your great questions. Appreciate it. Thank you.